Thompson. On the show today, we're delighted to have ACT Party's Brooke Van Valden here in our first of many election specials. Welcome to Property Matters. And welcome to Property Matters. I'm Stephen Dallow. Delighted to have you joining us for another Monday here on Planet FM. And a big welcome to those listening to our podcasts, which you can download on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple and Samsung Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. I'm pretty sure you'll find us there. Now, our elections are looming, and we reached out to all our political parties currently in government and invited them to come on to chat housing, investment, new bills and builds, and the rental market for both landlords and tenants, but also to get to know them and their party's views and the policies that they have in this space. Now, this is an informal show, so we also want to just get to know the people behind the politics as well. Both the ACT and National Party agreed to come on the show. Sadly, the other parties did decline, but we are delighted to have National's Chris Bishop on the show next week, and this week we're kicking it off with ACT Party's Brooke Van Velden, Deputy Leader of the ACT Party, and someone running for the Tamaki Electrical... Electrical. Gee, that was a good start, wasn't it? <laughs> Electric seat. Welcome to the show, Brooke. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Great to have you here. See how many words I can get tongue-tied around at the start. It's <laughs> definitely Monday afternoon. I'll blame the Auckland traffic. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe that's a whole different conversation for our show. <laughs> Look, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I know how crazy it is in the lead-up to an election, um, but it's really a chance for us to get to know you. And before we sort of get into the housing-focused questions, I'd, you know, I'd like to understand, and for our listeners to understand, who you are and my research says you grew up in Auckland and have a background in economics and international trade. You've done everything career-wise from working in a factory to being a corporate affairs consultant. Mm -hmm. So what made you choose politics as your next calling? Well there was a lot that all kind of led up to it and all kind of amalgamated and made me go into politics. Um, Firstly, I stood for Parliament for the first time in 2017, so this is my third election running. Um, At that time, I was 24, and I put myself forward for the ACT Party, and they selected me to be number three on the list. So I got elevated quite quickly. (laughs) And Um, go. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, within another three years, um, selected by the board to be the deputy leader when I was 27. Um, So I've had a, a... most of my 20s involved in politics in some form. Um, But the thing that really frustrated me when I was younger and interested in how the world worked was that I was an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that meant that I needed to support the Green Party Mm. for my sins. I did vote for the Green Party once upon a time. But the more I started understanding economics and international trade, the more I started to um, feel how business worked and how our economy works and how we work internationally with other nations. And I started to realize that all of the stuff that I've been hearing didn't make sense anymore. You've got a lot of really good feel-good policies, a lot of kindness, a lot of people standing up there saying they know the solutions to all your problems. But the more I delved into the policies, I realized it would have been better if no one had done anything Mm. because the policies don't actually stack up. And so I started looking for some more, I guess, good public policy, and that's where I found ACT. Um, And at the time, that was a bit confusing for me because I didn't feel like I wanted to support ACT back then. Um, But I did actually align with a lot of the policies. 
And that got me more interested in ACT because I thought, well, hang on a sec. I agree with the philosophy. I agree with personal responsibility, good public policy, not actually taxing and banning everything being the solution. Actually, free enterprise can solve a lot of the world's problems. Um, And I started to think, why is it that so many people don't know this message? And so that made me put up my hand. And I also didn't really like this idea that if you disagreed with the common consensus for how you solve the world's problems, then you were somehow bad or evil. And there was this kind of cancel culture that went along with, you know, environmentalism at the Mm. time. And unfortunately, that feels like it's gotten worse. And so it was a bit of freedom of speech, but just good public policy that brought me along to act. And then I decided, well, if if no one else is going to do it, I'll put up my hand to show more people our message with an act. And so have yeah. you have you managed to bring across some of that? I guess what what you loved about the Greens originally, or, or the passion for the environment and sustainability, and and the sort of the global look. Have you managed to sort of gently bring that into Act Party? Well, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you look at one of our policies is about how do we help farmers? How do we help? allow for new technology and innovation to help solve some climate change issues. Uh, And we've said we do actually need to liberalise some of our genetic modification laws. And I'll give you a really good example. There are things called ryegrasses that have been created in laboratories, even within Auckland University and our universities here in New Zealand, but we can't plant them in New Zealand to do trials to see whether or not they'll actually work uh, because of the genetic modification laws that preempt that from happening. So this new technology has been taken up in the United States, but they've done studies and it shows this new grass would completely reduce uh, methane production and carbon emissions with cows, which we know we rely on for our economy. So why is it that we don't allow for new technology and innovation to solve these problems, but instead we have an environmental minister down in Wellington who says, you know, what the solution is is to cull the number of cows that we have in the country. Well, that would harm our economy and harm our farmers. Maybe there's a better way, and that's new innovation and technology, and that's free market and open enterprise. And so that's kind of how I look at Mm. solving the problems rather than banning and taxing and trying to regulate and control. It's how do we liberalise and allow for more knowledge and more innovation to flourish. Finding a better way. Mm. What was it like being in your 20s and suddenly, you know, going, hang on, I'm now part of a political party and next minute I'm deputy leader. Like, I mean, your parents must be (laughs) glowing with pride. Well, I think they're probably still trying to figure out what on earth I've done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, I'm not from a political family, Mm. so I've taken a very different uh, turn from what my family's been involved in. Uh, We've always been small business. Right. Um, You know, I grew up in a small business home. um, But for myself, it was a bit of a a switch because I didn't grow up wanting to be in politics or thinking I'd be a politician. Um, I studied economics because I had an interest in that. Uh, but certainly never thought I'd be Prime Minister one day or something. Um, For me, though, it was genuinely about wanting to help people and be an advocate. And one area where I I started to get far more involved in politics was when I was working in corporate affairs. Um, I understood how Parliament worked because I was working for a range of groups within industries uh, who were... I was advocating 
to stop over-regulation of their industries. And because of that, David Seymour one day tapped me on the shoulder. Uh, We already knew each other at that point. And he said, would you come and work in Wellington for me? Because I'm trying to work on this end-of-life choice bill and I could use your help. Mm -hmm. And at first I said, no, because I have no desire of living in Wellington. It's too cold. And it's, you know, there are too many politicians down there. Um, But I did actually say yes, because I believed in choice and dignity and respect for people at all stages of their lives, Um, because I am a social liberal. And I, I felt so... I don't I don't even know how you express it but it was just such a privilege to work on a piece of legislation like that and I worked on that and wrote it over 3 years helped to negotiate it through the parliament process and negotiate it through the referendum process and I'm I'm really proud mm. of the work that we managed to do because there are people now who are suffering from terrible terminal illnesses who know that there could be another choice if they choose to take it the choice is there. They don't need to take it, but it can have a palliative effect knowing that if things got too much, there is another way. Um, and, and I've had people even in, within my own life who have actually used the assisted dying legislation and their family members have reached out to me and said it was such a beautiful process to be part of that and to say goodbye before the end. Mm. Yeah. What a grounding in politics, too, for that whole process to, to undertake. That must set you in good stead for the future, knowing and, and, and understanding the, the difficult journey that that is. Yeah, I got a really in-depth understanding of how Parliament worked because of that legislation, because uh, I was there right from the get-go, from the first reading of the bill, which is where Parliament decides, do we actually want to debate this law or not? all the way through 16 months of select committee hearings. At the time, it was the largest consultation in history. Wow. Um, We flew up and down New Zealand from Kerikeri to Gore and just listened to so many stories of bad deaths, people's perspectives, every argument you could think for and against this type of legislation. Uh, And we crafted a bill that worked for everybody to make sure it was safe Um, to make sure it was robust, but also allowed for people to have choice. Um, And the the law is working in practice. And we saw all the way through that consultation period how Parliament worked, the ins and outs of it, and even drafting legislation, and then how the negotiations occur. Because it was really unusual as a piece of legislation too, in that every MP was voting on their conscience, rather than because of which party they belonged with. So it was one-on-one negotiation, which is really mm. unusual, rather than you know four blocks of parties. Massive. If we switch now to sort of our, our, I guess, our listenership very much in this property space, over the last few years, the rental and tenancy space has seen a lot of regulation changes. Some of the biggest being around healthy homes and removing the no reason 90-day end of tenancy rule. Where do do you and your party see this heading in the future? Do you propose further amendments in this space? Yeah, with the Residential Tenancy Act, look, I've heard from a lot of people on this that they do want change. Um, And I've I've listened and I think the right thing to do is to make amendments and change. Um, The first thing I think that has to go is the 90-day no-cause termination. Um, 
I've heard from a lot of people who are landlords who have said, look, because I know that I can't get rid of someone if it didn't work out, that doesn't give me faith that I should take on somebody Mm. that I'm not sure of. Um, And so you're having some homes being left vacant because people are thinking, I'm I'm not willing to take a chance Mm. on someone. But I've also had other alternatives, which is... You know, people who have actually contacted me with criminal convictions and said, can you please get rid of this? Because I can't get a home. Hmm. But Um, at least I could come on and prove myself. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they've said, look, it's really difficult for me because I know any time I go and look for a home, I'm going to go right to the bottom of the list. Yep. And there's going to be a lot of people wanting that home. And I've got a black mark against Hmm. my name. And if they knew... And and the landlord knew, look, I can get, I can take a chance on yep. this person, but if the walls end up getting broken or things get smashed, I can I can move them out. Everyone would be happier. Mm. But instead, that was a law that was created to try and help the vulnerable people, and yet vulnerable people are saying this has made it, it harder. Yeah, and that's a really nice angle to come from because on this show we've had a number of property man- managers over the last year come from the other angle of feeling unsafe because they haven't got that ability to move someone out mm. without providing a whole lot of detail, getting the neighbours involved, getting etc, which which has created some safety issues. Yep. But it was nice there to hear the, the switch from the other angle as well yep. because some of the property managers feel it needs to go to bring back their safety. Yeah, I think everybody realises that this law had a good intention. I mean, mm. let's not forget that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it hasn't worked in practice. And when you think of this guy with this criminal conviction, unable to actually get a rental, it makes so much more sense why we have a huge waiting list for Kaingora homes mm. and for emergency housing. Because where else do you go? Mm. Mm. You know, yeah. the government is creating a whole class of people that are unable to get into rental accommodation because they might have something on their name uh, that makes them less desirable for a landlord to take a chance. Mm. So where do you stand then on regulation? So do you believe the rental space needs to be regulated and properties managed by licensed and qualified property managers? No, look, I, I disagree with that. I think this is a solution to a problem that doesn't really exist. Um the the government's always looking for ways to create another level of bureaucracy, I guess. But from from my standpoint, I look at this and say, if we've got problems with landlords, the best thing that you can do, bearing in mind it's probably a very small pool, is to make sure that we have enough homes to go around for everybody. Now, if we have homes for everybody and you've actually got landlords trying to bring people into properties, you're going to make sure that that property is as good as you can get so that you can hold on to a tenant and you can hold on to a good tenant. At the moment, um, because we don't have enough rentals to actually go around for everyone, sure, there are going to be some people who will take advantage of that. Mm. Um, And I'm sure there are, but it doesn't mean we have to make it 
overly bureaucratic for sure. everybody because of a couple of bad eggs. Yeah, I guess people, you know, would look at regulation too for covering things like, you know, the dodgy landlord that's taken off with the bond and, you know, the need to have good trust accounting in place so that we're protecting investors' assets. So perhaps mm. the broader picture, but whether that needs full regulation or, or better policing, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I'd say let's use the tenancy tribunal. Um, and for a lot of cases, that seems to be working for people. And where it's not, maybe there could be some tweaks to the tenancy tribunal. Um, but I don't see the need for a whole new bureaucratic regime. Okay. So you've mentioned a few times there around our most vulnerable. So what would be your party's goal to find these houses for our most vulnerable who are struggling to get into a rental property? Yeah, well, it it is a big problem. Mm. I mean, there's, oh, not there's just no one magic thing. wand on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's not just one thing. I mean, if I could do the the best thing to help people who can't afford a home or afford a rental, it would be to stop government wasteful spending because that's driving up inflation because we've got so much money going around sloshing around the economy and it's driving up the price of everything because we're not producing anything more. That's why inflation's gone so high. And it means that if you're somebody who is just, you know, living week to week, that cost has gone up week to week and it's harder and harder. So the first thing that we can do to make housing affordable is stop government waste to stop rising levels inflation so that prices stop going up. That's the first thing that we've got to do, right. Then you've got to think, well, why is it that homes are so expensive for people? Well, it's because there aren't enough to go around. You know, it's about supply and demand. If you have few homes, then you can command a really high price for them because you've got so many people wanting them. So we want to build more homes and allow for more rentals. I think what's happened over the past few years has made it less desirable for someone to invest in rentals um, because you've got divisive policies coming out of the government where it's essentially, you know, people are being told you're a bad person if you're a landlord. Mm. Uh, You've got the interest deductibility limitations um, and then you've got the bright line test extensions. Um, I mean, the list goes on. (laughs) The the Residential Tenancy Act changes. Um, And I know that they tried to make a carve-out to say, We still want landlords to invest in new builds, so we'll have that interest deductibility just for the new builds. But if you've got laws changing all the time, you don't have certainty Mm. about what's actually happening. Um, So I do want to give landlords certainty and say, it's actually okay. Thank you for doing what you do and for giving more homes to people. Um, But we do want more homes to be built, not just for first-home buyers, but for people who rent as well. Because it's not just a and-or. You've got to have a range of homes for any stage of someone's life. Mm. Um, So part of bringing down those costs are making it easier to build um, with a building materials equivalence register. So that's about the materials you use to build a home. We've seen the price of materials go through the roof in recent years because we don't have enough competition for what materials are even being used to build the homes. And I want to see more companies from overseas able to come into New Zealand. Um, Our products 
to be used and that would drive down the price of a lot of materials. I mean, jib is the classic mm. example that everyone knows about, um, but there are other ones, different types of timber, different types of insulation from companies that I know would love to come into the New Zealand market, but it's just so difficult. Mm. So if we can bring those in, we can drop that price, make it more affordable when you're buying a home, and that means your landlord's going to have a lower mortgage and a lower flow-on cost. Um, then it's about how do you get councils to actually want people to build? Yep. Now, I've talked to builders who've said it takes longer for them to get the consent than it does to actually build the house. Mm. And I think it's because councils know that they don't actually want more homes because it costs them money. Every time a new home goes in, they've got to try and figure out how they connect that home to the community with adequate infrastructure. And our councils and councillors are quite cash-strapped. You know, they're always doing that balancing act of either raising debt or raising the rates bills, which is never popular for anybody. No, definitely not, no. <laughs> and so I've said let's incentivise councils to want to build in their own backyards by giving them money. Mm. And it's called my GST sharing bill. I had it in Parliament this year. And it says every time a new home goes in, half of the GST cost on construction goes off to the local council that issues the consent. That is wordy, but in effect, <laughs> it means every time a new home goes in, the council gets funding for infrastructure. And I think that would incentivize councils to say, hey, instead of us bearing the costs of new development, it's us saying, thanks so much. Mm. Now we can get on and build and plan for a bigger city. And I think you'd end up with councils wanting you to build because they know that they get funding for it. And on my estimates, that's around $1.4 billion a year to local councils. So that would help for sewerage, mm. stormwater, pipes, road maintenance, infrastructure that's basically needed for the community. And we know it's not there at the moment. Do you support the larger sort of build-to-rent projects and, and those that are lifelong renters being able to actually build their community and rent for 10 years and sort of feel like they own their home, but they don't, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think we need a range of mm. housing. You know, it's not just about having standalone homes and it's not just about apartments. Everybody is an individual or a family group and they want something different that works for them. Now, I, I really reject this idea that all young people want to live in an apartment because that's not true. <laughs> and it's not the case also that people who are 60 and older only want to live in single mm. standalone homes because that's not true either. It's a range of housing that gives people choice for whatever stage in life they are. And if people want to have a 10-year contract with their landlord, I reckon they should be allowed to. And they should also be allowed to set the standards for what that tenure actually looks like, whether it means you can paint all the walls, yeah. replace parts, Absolutely. whatever part of the house they want to, maybe even retile. If your landlord says, yep, I'm fine with that, you should be allowed mm. to do it. Um, but it also means, yes, let's have more build to rent specifically for that purpose. I, I would like to see a change to the Overseas Investment Act to help that occur. Right. Because my understanding is we can have um, international money or capital come to New Zealand for build to rent, but those companies are then tied to New Zealand and can't sell it on mm. to another international um, you know, company.
company or entity, and that means people aren't likely to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely going to hold it back. A bit of a change of tack here. We've seen in the media many stories around the struggles that property managers have had moving on someone for antisocial behaviour, neighbours living in fear and not prepared to formally complain, or in the social housing sector we've seen neighbours go months for months with major issues and nothing being done. Obviously we've talked about the 90-day rule here, but what does your party plan to make sort of any improvements in this space? Yeah, again, this is an area I hear a lot about. You know, landlords are really fearful that they can't move people on. And it has a, a flow-on effect for the whole community. Mm. You know, if you get in a really bad tenant, what are you supposed to do? Um, I've heard of people who are, um, are fearful of actually telling on their neighbours because of that bad behaviour. And if you have to have three of them in, what was it, in three months? Yep. That's really difficult. <laughs> Try and get that in writing. Um, look, I think there, there does need to be a bit of a rebalance um, in favour of being able to get rid of someone who is antisocial. Um, I, I think that's only right. And I think that should be in kainga aura as well as yeah. in private tenancies. Absolutely, because we've you know we've seen and we've seen people on waiting lists for social housing for years. That must be adding to their own personal and family stress. Living in motels and hotels, emergency housing, not fit for families to live in. Mm. Add that that's going to naturally create some antisocial behaviour. Mm. So uh, you've got a lot of lot of work ahead. That's the, <laughs> any party has a lot of work ahead in this space. You know, it is, it is yeah. a massive area to work on. It is. And, you know, the problem is that there's just been so many bad changes and mm. we've got to walk them all back. Mm. That's what it is. But, I mean, is it right that you have families living in motels who could have stability for their kids and at the same time you've got unruly antisocial tenants in Kainga Ora housings who aren't looking after them mm. and and they won't ever get rid of them and I just don't think it's right that we have people who might actually look after these homes um, who'd feel thankful to have one So where does the who, change who are, who are need to waiting? come? Uh, are we looking at sort of the top down from Kaingarora? Yeah, I think the change does have to come from leadership yeah. uh, You'd have to get rid of the sustaining tenancies policy which is within Kaingora, and mm. it says, look, no matter what happens, it's nearly impossible to get rid of someone because we want to make sure everyone's always in a, in the same home. I just don't think that's right because, in effect, imagine if that was the case for private landlord, well, it kind of is <laughs> in some ways, that you could just do whatever you want and it's okay because the landlord will come in and fix up all the walls, mm. fix up all the doors... Um, and you're never in fear that something's going to happen. You know, I just don't think that's right because if if you're offered a home, I would hope you have enough personal responsibility and respect of that dwelling to look after it. Hmm. Not always the case, no. (laughs) No, I know. I hear a lot of horror stories. (laughs) Look, if we shift now to purchasing a home, whether to live in or as an investment, and I guess looking at, you know, first home buyers who are struggling to get on the housing ladder, especially here in our big cities, 
Does your party have plans to improve the affordability or financing for someone wanting to purchase their first home? Yeah, I mean, part of it is looking into that um, triple CFA, um, and we, we've said that we would we're open to amending it and walking parts of it back, because my understanding is that with the triple CFA changes that happened in the last term of government, um, there are now banks unable to have loans with clients that they've had relationships with for years who have always paid um, any loans that they've had, Mm. unable to now get finance um, because they have to look into things like, do you have a Netflix account? Mm. How much do you spend on your cat food? Um, How much do you spend on your Ubers every week? Rather than looking at the larger picture. That they're actually paying a ridiculous price to live in in a rental in Auckland anyway. That's right. And have they actually managed to pay their rent every week? Mm, Yep. mm. And maybe they've done it for a whole decade, but that's not good enough for the government's Mm. regulations anymore. Um, So I think we've got to walk that that back because it's actually stopping people being able to get finance, even if they can afford it. Um, And then, I mean, part of it really is just about building more homes. Um, and one of the reasons I think it, it is quite difficult for people to get uh, finance at the moment is the mortgage rates are really expensive. That's not something you can fix overnight, but it does actually go back to government. The reason mortgage rates are so high is because the government has been spending up large, increasing inflation, and Adrian Orr, sitting over at the Reserve Bank, He's got a goal to try and keep inflation between 1% and 3%. Um, His lever is to put up the OCR, and in effect, that puts up everybody's mortgage rate. Mm. So if we go step by step backwards, you think, okay, well, how do we get the OCR to come down? How do we get the mortgage rates to come down? Well, it all flows back to government expenditure. So we've said in our Act Party Alternative Budget... We've, we've got to go line by line through everything that the government is spending and ask it to justify itself. If we weren't spending money on this particular project today, would we spend money on it tomorrow? Mm. And it's actually amazing. You have successive governments get in and they talk a big talk and then nothing changes. Mm. And we've had projects that have wasted like a million bucks, two million bucks year on year and no one sits down and thinks, are we getting any value for this? Why are we still doing this? Mm. You know, entire ministries that you go, what have you actually produced lately? Are you bigger than you need to be? Why are you employing so many people? What have you actually been working on? And before you know it, you can find billions of dollars that you could cut, give more money into people's own back pockets, and actually reduce that inflationary pressure. Mm. You've mentioned several times today, more housing needed, dare I ask the the swear word question of what are your thoughts on Kiwi Build? (laughs) (laughs) Surely you know my thoughts on Kiwi Build. Where would you take it then under your leadership? I don't think Kiwi Build should exist. Um, I don't actually think the government itself has a role in building projects. Um, What does any government department know about building homes more than a private developer or a mum and dad who are building their own home? The answer is nothing. Mm. You know, they're just a collection of people like anyone else who have created their own form of building company 
which has been doing really poorly. And if this, you know, Kiwi build or this building company existed on the open market, I mean, no one would buy yeah. off them because they've been doing so badly. And in effect, they've just been buying up other private developments to get homes built. Uh, so I don't actually think they should exist. By existing, they have driven up the price of land um, because I, I've had conversations with people who have said that they've gone along to auctions and Kainga Aura just comes along the top and offers the highest sum of money because they've got an open checkbook with the taxpayer's money. You know, it's not actually their own money, so they're not using it responsibly. Yeah. And it means they can come over the top of anybody else who is wanting to buy a new build and just say, we'll offer a couple of thousand more. And all of a sudden, you've just inflated the price of that house. So, no, I think it has to go. Have you ever watched the Australian TV show Utopia that's set in the government <laughs> building department on I, Netflix? I think I have, but a it's really long time ago. So you just reminded me of several moments from that show. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. It's very interesting. Look, because actually so much of it has come true. It's oh, one, of, one of those. It's set in, a, in a, a government department whose sole job it is is to build infrastructure for Australia. <laughs> but at, at no point do they ever actually build anything. But there's lots of yep. meetings and plannings. But I think I think you'd have a chuckle. I think you'd have a oh, chuckle. It's probably <laughs> a bit dark, yeah. black humour because it's too too realistic. Too close. Too close. <laughs> Look, our final questions. We, we asked our audience over the last few weeks. We said we we had both yourself and Chris Bishop coming on the show and to send us any questions. Now you've you've kind of answered some of these already, but I'd like to honour these young people that have sent them in. And um, Joseph actually asks a really tough question. He says, people make the unfortunate decision to take their lives when they lose hope. Do you think that financial tension predominantly from high house prices, interest rates, have a direct correlation with depression and anxiety? It's a tough question from Joseph and an interesting link. That is a tough question and a really sad Mm. question. Look... I think there are a lot of young people who who don't have hope um, because it's really hard to get ahead and it's hard to aspire for something when you feel like you're going backwards mm. every week. So I do get that. And I also hear from a lot of younger people who say, it is getting so tough in New Zealand, I'm just going to move to Australia. Mm. Um you know, I met uh, about a year ago a man who stuck in my mind because he, he said it with so much conviction and passion. And he said, I'm in my 30s now and I just feel so hopeless because I don't think I'll ever be able to own my own home. And I've met young women when I've been out door knocking who, for whatever reason, open up to me, maybe because demographically I'm yep. quite similar, but they say, look, I am in my early 30s now and I'm making a conscious choice to not have children because I don't want to raise children if I don't have a home yet because wow. I want to give them stability. And it's a really unfortunate reality that people are facing. Do I have a child in a rental where I might not be able to afford or keep my child stable year on year? I'm not sure about it. Or do I wait and hold off having a family because I actually do want to provide, in a pretty traditional sense, a home with stability for my kids. And I just don't think it's a choice that anybody should have to make. So, yes, I do think there's a lot of of feeling of angst and hopelessness out there. Of course, that's not all tied back to housing. No. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into anything that, that people are 
you know, having mental health issues about. But certainly we have to have to solve this housing problem and get housing to be more affordable and achievable for everybody so that people can have stability for their kids mm. and you're not making that trade-off because I don't think it's right. I guess questions like that help motivate you, though, as a politician. Mm. You know, you, you, this is a young person, sort of look at it, and we need to be motivated in our work. Yep. Um, I can see your passion for, for what you do. Uh, what other things are motivating you as you head towards this election? For me, you know, I, I do see myself as an advocate. I really enjoy meeting people and, and taking on board their stories and trying to figure out how do we solve this person's problem. Um, for me, one thing I'm taking to the election is the need for safety. Mm. Our streets are not safe. It doesn't matter where I go, people are not safe. I've met parents who don't feel like they can have their kids leave the house. Um, but I've also been door knocking and met really fearful people mm. because they don't even feel safe in their own homes anymore. Um, really tragically, I've had a woman um, burst into tears on me who was a shop owner. And she said, I'm actually really scared because both of the shops on either side have been ram raided and it's just a matter of time. And I can't even imagine how horrible it is to wake up every morning and go into an environment where you don't feel safe because you're not sure if someone's going to come in and attack you. Um, so we have to get that under control. And I don't think we have consequences for crime anymore. And we do have to make our streets safe so that our community can be there for each other. Um, and we're actually looking after not having more victims. Mm. And that's what I'm taking from people. I hear that every day when I'm out door knocking. So you're door knocking and running in the area of Tamaki. What is it that you love about Tamaki so much? <laughs> Look, I just love the people of Tamaki. Um, I meet some really interesting people, um, but I, I want to represent people who I think share my values. And the people of Tamaki are, by and large, people who've worked really hard to get where they are. They pay a lot of tax. Um, they have, on average, a lot of small children and are really worried about the education system and slipping educational standards. Um, they're people who are socially liberal. Um, I know statistically it's about 40% Christian, uh, but also if you look at the uh, votes for end-of-life choice, was highly in favour of choice. So they're people who have kind of more traditional but socially liberal values, just want to get on with life, yep. have a good job, have good education for their kids, um, and just, you know, get on with it. So I, I share that as well. I just want good public policy so that we can all live our best lives. Brilliant. I've only gone through a quarter of the questions I was going to ask you, and we've run out of time. Um, absolute pleasure to have you in the studio today. Uh, you've got some big roads ahead, um, but you can do it, and I 100% bet your parents are proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on Property Matters tonight. If you've got any questions you'd like us to ask Chris Bishop next week, email us, propertymatters at barfoot.co.nz. Thank you, Brooke. Good luck with the, the next run ahead. You've got a busy time ahead. Thank you. Great to have you here. We'll catch you again next Monday here on Planet FM. Have a fabulous week. Good luck in the traffic tonight.